welcome to Chinese Revolutions, a podcast about how China came to be the way that it is today, looking at modern Chinese history through the lens of revolutionary movements in China, starting from 1839, working forward to the present. I am your host, Nathan Bennett. I lived in China for seven years, and this podcast for me is a sort of love letter and farewell, farewell letter to that country. Okay, here we go. Uh, beginning announcements, uh, as always, uh, you can support for free by rating and reviewing on all platforms, sharing with your friends. You can go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. Um, also, please send me an email, chineserevolutions at gmail.com. This is the end of our treatment of the Taiping Rebellion as such. Next episode will be the beginning of a new season of the podcast. So in this episode, we're going to finish with the epilogue provided by Stephen Platt in Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom, China, the West, and the Epic Story of the Taiping Civil War. Then we'll proceed with some of our own takeaways following the narrative of this podcast. In many ways, uh, kind of how I've seen it, the Taiping Rebellion is the last great classical Chinese rebellion like the Yellow Turban Revolt at the end of the Han Dynasty. In other ways, it energetically stirred the pot for whatever segments of the Chinese upper classes were looking to replace the foreign Manchu regime, uh, the Qing Dynasty. So as we get in, we're going to be following uh, Platt very closely here. When we, when we finish the war, it's with Zheng Guofan being the most powerful man in China. As Chairman Mao said, power flows from the barrel of a gun, and Zheng Guofan had a lot of guns that had fought with and for him for the whole span of the war he'd been involved in. He was ordered to come up with an army from somewhere, anywhere, and lead it against the Taiping. And through a lot of back and forth and a lot of even needing to ignore orders from Beijing, he pushed on to defeating the tai, defeating the Taiping at their capital, Nanjing. You know, and he did this, and he was completely outside the normal command structure. His troops were personally loyal to him and to the people who recruited them. They were recruited by friends and family, friends and family of friends and family. And even Zheng Guofan's top commanders were urging him to move on and overthrow the Qing dynasty. But he didn't do that. Zheng Guofan's orders... Um, Oh, sorry. He he ordered an administrative complex to be built in the city of Nanjing on the site of the heavenly king of the uh, Taiping Rebellion, uh, his former palace. And so from there, he oversaw the reconstruction of the area of China devastated by the war. And immediately after the war, he dissolved his army and sent the men home. His core personal quality was you know, loyalty to the emperor. He was an obedient public official. We can kind of compare him and contrast uh, to uh, Ulysses S. Grant in the American Civil War. 
they're the same in that they're willing to order men to their deaths, willing to order the deaths of enemies when it fits the strategic need. Now, Grant didn't order executions of captured enemies like Zheng Guofan did, but it's a different continent, different style of war. Now, Grant himself was a military man, uh, not really successful in anything other than public service. Um, but both of them were willing to do whatever it took to win, improvising where necessary, pressing the war with aggression to end it, because that's what everybody needed. Zhongguo Fan was a civil servant, forced to turn into a military commander. And what's funny is both of these men were contemporaneous. Now, in the American system, anyone can be elected president after the previous president. Uh, for Zhongguo Fan, there was no way he was ever going to be emperor unless he ran for the emperor with a sword. There, that there were, you know, one of the difference that neither man was really seeking to to take the top job. There are, like in the American Civil War, there are many examples of Union generals who were trying to have a successful military campaign in their record to kind of bolster their you know their, their 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 record really for you know viability as the next president well n neither Zhongguo Fan nor Grant were really aiming for that they were just trying to do their jobs in Grant's case he really did much better when he had military things to do he had various failed business ventures um, but uh he wasn't like some of the you know some of the other generals who were trying to come up with some crazy scheme to then have that be part of the story that they were going to tell when they ran for president so back to Zhongguo Fan he was very very confucian uh, he believed that, that the emperor was chosen by heaven that you know chosen by the cosmic order uh, of things to rule china and he was first and foremost a scholar and an interpreter of moral codes for implementation in government policy. This is what Confucian civil servants were supposed to do. You know, with great power comes great responsibility. Um, he knew that he knew what it was to command. He knew how heavy it was to rule over others. Uh, a, a line from uh, from Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom is. The emperor of China was not a man to be envied, he was a man to be pitied, that uh, Zheng Guofan didn't want to be the emperor. His brother wanted to aggrandize himself on the, on the strength of winning the war, but Zheng Guofan sternly admonished him on two points. One, that military commanders who enrich themselves bring ruin on themselves and their nation, and two, backing away from power is a matter of self-preservation, so that no one thinks you're going for the top job. Nevertheless, court officials slandered Zhang Guofan and kept him at work, 
you know, in a low position, well, relative to where, you know, where he could have risen to, really, uh, that he he was kept in his job, ruling over the area of China where the Taiping Rebellion had been, and they, and he had to wear himself out at work in the remaining eight years of his life. He wasn't allowed to retire to academia. He had to stay in administrative positions. That the uh, the rumor mill ground him up. That they they used him up and spat him out. That's sadly often how how it is with a lot of important historical figures. That yeah they they saved the country, but then all of the uh, flunkies who stayed you know in the capital just kind of you know, tear them up and spit them out. So with the, the impact of the war, there's how many men were, there's how many were killed, there's how many who died from secondary causes like disease, starvation, other things, and how many were simply never born because the people who would have been parents were killed or diverted from settling down and marrying and having children. Uh, a common figure of deaths is 20 or 30 million. Some numbers go as high as 70 million dead. But still, the, the area had not recovered many decades after the war. Uh, no one knows really how many people died. No one knows how many people would have been born. I mean, when you look at the population of China today, well, there hasn't been war there for decades that people have been allowed to reproduce and the the only reason there aren't two billion is that there was the extreme one child policy for you know for a number of years that you know that people have children and there get to be more people well we have no idea you can, but you can count in tens of millions just how many people are just gone or never existed. Um, I, I, you know, sometimes war is good for the environment in a twisted sort of way. So the land, if it's not being worked, it's allowed to naturally regenerate. But I would prefer like today's methods, where farming techniques are much more advanced. So. A lot of area, a lot of land is able to be returned to nature just because. So then there didn't have to be a war. So for the you know for the Qing Dynasty, they did survive, but they didn't really win. They were saved by Zhongguofan rising to the task and preserving the social order that produced someone like him. He believed in China. He believed in the Confucian system, but. When you, like, say, when you read Romance of the Three Kingdoms, well, when it turns from the emperor being able to take charge of the situation and it, and then the emperor needs people to rescue him, that emperor isn't worth very much anymore. The, the British also intervened and they needed to preserve an orderly market for their industrial manufactures and their commercial products. The the Qing dynasty were kept around because they were the devil that everybody knew. 
rather than the devil you don't know. And, you know, so while uh, the Dowager Empress, who was ruling for, you know, decades after this war, while she was very savvy about keeping her own power, the 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 whole Qing regime failed to really do more than persist. In the end, it was taken down by a revolution. But we'll get to that again at the end. After the war, it um, it didn't set the foreign powers up as the Qing dynasty's best friends. You know, like yeah, you you guys helped us out. We're gonna love you forever. You know, once the apocalyptic calamity is ended, the slow-burning, slow-grinding catastrophe of foreign occupation comes back into you know full attention. In Britain, they saw themselves as having somehow saved China. Whether or not that's true, the foreign imposition on China remained. You know, all the concessions, treaty ports, spheres of influence, extraterritoriality that was all still there. So when the bloody, bloody, bloody civil war is over, then all the the foreign impositions come back to mind. Occupation by the Taiping was not universally ruinous. Uh, recovery, by, uh, recovery of territory by Qing Dynasty soldiers was not always a welcome liberation. Foreigners who traveled in Taiping-ruled areas observed that life went on much as it had before. Farming went on, trades went on. It, it was okay. There wasn't a war there. It was orderly. The Qing armies retaking former rebel areas might loot and plunder as though it were conquered territory, or, you know, like the rebels are fair game for whatever you want to do to them. And... This reminds me of the uh, opinions of Western Europeans after they were liberated by American and British and other free French forces that, well, under the Germans, people had a few years to get used to that way of things being but then when the Allies come in, the, a lot of the shortages are still there. Um, you know, like American soldiers, even if they're coming to save you, soldiers can be very rowdy people. Soldiers are very interested in the local women. Um, when it's a matter of military policy to hand out condoms to soldiers to keep them from getting sexually transmitted diseases that's that's a that lets you know what's going on for the local population that you know, soldiers want to go you know go be with women and that's so so even if these guys are saying that they're coming to liberate you, it's not all positive. It's really hard after a war also not to see the defeated side as the bad guys. It's really hard not to see even the bad guys as utter villains. 
So in the like in in the British analysis, the 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 Taiping were you know barbarians. They were rebels, anarchy, you know, a riotous, you know, force of destruction. You know, there's part of me that kind of wants to talk about the Nazis, not to excuse the Nazis and say that they weren't so bad, but to examine the side that fought the Nazis. You know, reality is really very messy, but we only have one reality. There isn't, like, a reality where the Nazis didn't exist or where the allies fighting the Nazis were perfect. And, you know, in the end, it's like, if we come to a messy conclusion that's still pretty good, like, isn't that somehow good? Um, like, like, see, there's, there's only flawed people available to fight the bad guys. So when the flawed people defeat the super evil bad guys, their flaws don't get examined very thoroughly, and so are allowed to carry on a bit longer with their flaws uncorrected. So, you know, as you know, in in wrapping up the Taiping Rebellion, you know, for everybody who fought on the winning side, it it's really it's really hard to get past. They were going to kill me. It's really hard to put that aside. Um, but but also, um, when. Okay, so I, I had a point for this digression. So it it's like the 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 the, the Taiping weren't totally bad for a lot of the people who they ruled, but at the and then the like it, the 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 Taiping rebellion was a, was a situation in which like everybody somehow lost, even though the Qing dynasty survived it was suff it was carrying on on the sufferance of whoever had supported it and whatever the faults of the taiping they they weren't able to do whatever the good things were that they were trying to do and there was a war and it was fought to the very end and so after that the the one the the reality that came back was the foreigners are still here the british the french the germans the other europeans in so for for the actual end of the qing dynasty revolutionaries grew their hair out long like the taiping rebels in conscious imitation zeng guofan was regarded as a traitor to his race for fighting for the manchus Sun Yat-sen, who we will be getting to know very soon, was nicknamed Hong Xiuquan, that the Taiping Rebellion gave an example to these later revolutionaries. In the late 1800s, Qing ruled China continued to weaken. Um, it was bankrupted by foreign indemnities imposed upon it for various actions taken against foreign possessions, Reforms were inhibited by corruption and by whatever the Qing court was thinking. It's, I, I, it, 
you know, sometimes it's really hard to get people to act in their own self-interest. The, the Qing court just didn't allow various modernization schemes to really go through. They were further sapped by Japan, which did modernize, which took chunks out of China. They, or there was a huge naval defeat that the new modern Chinese navy was destroyed by the Japanese navy, and Japanese territorial you know, ambitions, like they carved off Taiwan and made that part of the Japanese empire. We're talking end of the 1800s, like, so that, that's, a, that's way before World War II. Uh, the view of Japanese statesman Ito Hirobumi, the Taiping should have been allowed to supplant the Qing because they would have brought the end of the already doomed Qing dynasty, and they would have succeeded in reforming China because they would have defeated their their uh, their the opposition, and they they would have had a free hand to remake. China and modernize and all that. Um, the end of the Qing, uh, which was on the way out, according to Ito Hirabumi, uh, it was put off, and so then its end was going to be a lot harder, and recovery would take a lot longer to accomplish. And in, and in Stephen Platt's analysis, he was right, that on multiple points he he was he was just right that he 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 nailed it there were you know kind of at the at the end of at the end of the book that we've been following for the second half of the taiping rebellion um stephen platt talks about two wrong perspectives by important leaders on either side of the war hongren gan the you know, missionary-educated guy who had helped Protestant preachers in Hong Kong, he thought he could see something in the British that meant that they would help the Taiping win the war. Frederick Bruce, the British ambassador, thought that he could see in the Qing regime like a force you know, standing for order against anarchy, chaos, and disorder, and... You know, like, like they they thought they could see something in the other side that that they had a connection with that they, why why they were worth building relationships with why they were worth the effort. Well, in Stephen Platt's final analysis, when you're analyzing a foreign civilization, make sure you're not looking at your own reflection when you think you see something in you know in whatever you're analyzing. So as we analyze China, we have to be able to see China from the Chinese perspective, or we have to see it from the perspective of somebody standing in China because you know, I'm not Chinese. There's no way I'm going to become Chinese. A lot of the years that I could have spent learning Chinese, really trying to become Chinese, as it were, I didn't do that. However, having been in China, I enjoyed the fact that China was stable. I enjoyed the fact... I enjoyed the peace and stability of China. And so, 
you know, the fact of the matter is, is that, like, say, it's the Communist Party that that orchestrated a lot of that, that administrates a lot of that. So I need to see things from the Chinese perspective. So that's what we're doing as we go forward with this podcast. So let's look at the Taiping Rebellion you know, in retrospect. They failed to remove foreign domination of China. They failed to reform the state to make it competitive in its contemporary international scene. You know, so Hong Xiuquan was really fixated on being another emperor. He was really fixated on he was God's son, that he was the younger brother of Jesus. Um, he couldn't get past that. They failed to make modern methods and technology coming into China a Chinese possession, as opposed to something brought in and run by foreign interests. Chinese businesses would adopt different foreign business practices, but say things like railroads. The Chinese state wasn't building those, even though Hong Rangan and, you know, you know might have had ideas to bring all that in. It never fell to him to make those decisions. Um, most importantly, the Taiping rebel, the, the Taiping movement, failed to manage the question of succession, that it might have formed a functioning, self-sustaining regime. Let's revisit the definition of revolution, and I'm drawing from our one of our early episodes. Okay, in a revolution, the rules change. The foundational facts change, or they are seen to change. Also note that revolution is basically an opportunistic infection. It takes advantage of weakness not normally present. So the Qing regime was critically weakened by the, tai by the opium wars, by foreign intervention, and... The, the Taiping movement was able to take off because the Qing regime didn't have the ability to suppress it. Uh, and so a lot of the rules were changing. Um, I, th I see the Taiping rebellion as an incomplete revolution, not merely because they lost, but because they tried too hard to kind of stuff a... Christianity-based ideology into the old form of the ancient Chinese imperial system. Um, they they didn't the the rules didn't change enough. The foundational facts were not sufficiently taken in by whatever the typing were trying to do. The political revolution, so a, a, a definition drawn from Wikipedia by author, or somebody named Jeff Goodwin, any and all instances in which a state or a political regime is overthrown and thereby transformed by a popular movement in an irregular, extra-constitutional, and or violent fashion. So the Taiping Rebellion was definitely an attempt at revolution. There was a group of people with a plan, 
and they tried to get rid of the Qing dynasty. Social revolution. Again, Jeff Goodwin. Revolutions entail not only mass mobilization and regime change, but also more or less rapid and fundamental social, economic, and or cultural change during or soon after the struggle for state power. So the Taiping were also trying to push through a social revolution. Uh, as we go through the as we go through following Chinese revolutions, there are going to be social revolutionary aspects. You know, family is going to change where people gain, uh, build their livelihoods is going to change. With the revolutionary parties, the Guomindang, the Communist Party, those those are going to radically alter the Chinese political landscape. You know, so all these things in play uh, to and to effect a successful revolution, it will require a specific set of people following a specific plan to, or to carry out a specific initiative to succeed and to remain in control. You know, between a point A and point Z, there's a lot of enemies, adverse conditions, and developmental stages to defeat, overcome, and pass through. And if you don't make it, your your revolution does not succeed. You know, further, they will have to manage the question of succession, you know, or at least put in place institutional measures to reform or to keep the ruling regime up to date and in control. Um, when we get to the People's Republic of China, we will see some smaller revolutions take place. Yet thus far, you know, as of 2023, the Communist Party remains in place. Also, we'll have to examine the case of Taiwan. It is a Chinese country, though, the, though it is the refuge of a defeated revolutionary party, but it is a functioning state. You know, if, however you want to look at it in the context of Chinese history, it's something we're going to have to look at because the Guomindang were a revolutionary party. They were aided by, by Russian communists in forming themselves into a Leninist party. And so even after 1949, you're going to see revolutionary measures being taken in Taiwan because Chiang Kai-shek and the Guomindang, they intended to win the Chinese Revolution. Um, yeah, but that's for much later. In our coming episodes, we're going to look at the quality of the Qing regime that was spared destruction, the example of Japan, which did successfully modernize and roll with the challenge of European intrusion into Asia, Attempts at reform under the Qing dynasty and why they failed. The foreign establishment, like with the international settlements, concession areas, comparing China to other countries variously colonized by other foreign powers, and how that drove the nature of the Chinese revolution. And, uh, you know, China kind of had to put its political establishment back together. India was kind of released as one large unit that had been ruled by Britain, whereas China had all these concession areas on the coast. Um, 
and then we'll look at the beginnings of the revolution that would finally supplant the Qing regime. Well, thanks for coming along for this episode. Um, as always, please rate and review on all platforms, share with your friends. You can go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast to donate to help support the show. We recently renewed hosting. Please send me an email, chineserevolutions at gmail.com. I've been your host, Nathan Bennett.